I am Platt on the line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Natalie McLean joins me again. The award-winning, best-selling wine writer has just published a new memoir, Wine Witch on Fire, Rising from the Ashes of Divorce, Defamation, and Drinking Too Much. It's an engaging book that recounts what was happening in her life about 10 years ago. When she first appeared on this program in 2011, she had just published her second book, Unquenchable. And like her first book, Red, White, and Drunk All Over, it was uh, critically acclaimed and sold well. She also appeared regularly in newspapers across uh, Canada and the United States, as well as on television. But soon after, her marriage uh, was ending, and she was the victim of uh, an online mobbing by other critics, critical of her work. She recounts the experiences of uh, a decade ago in detail, as well as honestly, with uh, the frankness and humor that has made Ms. McLean the popular personality in the media. The book chronicles how she made it out of the abyss and how she's bounced back personally and professionally. She went back on the dating scene after 20 years off the market and has found love. And her work has yielded many plaudits, including um, World's Best Drinks Journalist at the World Food Awards, four James Beard Foundation Journalism Awards, and the MFK Fisher Awards from both the James Beard Foundation and Les uh, Dames Escoffier International. She also discusses how her own consumption of alcohol has come into focus in recent years. It's thoughtful introspection she's done on herself, but also how wine and spirits are marketed to women. Visit winewitchonfire.com to buy the book, where if you get it there, you'll get some bonuses, including a free companion reader guide that'll have tips for uh, book club discussion or how to organize an informal wine tasting with friends. This new book is published by Dundurn Press. Please uh, welcome back to the Plant Online program, Natalie McLean. Ms. McLean, good morning. Hey, Joseph, it's Natalie. This is more than our first time talking, so Natalie, please. <laughs> Will do, yeah. I mean, I, I, I looked it up. It's, it was 2011 when you first came on, just as your second book was published. I was going to say what's new, but I guess most of it's in this book, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, lots. Yeah. <laughs> the short answer, but yes, um, a lot of it's in that book. Although the memoir really focuses on my worst vintage, so kind of a time span of a year when yeah. everything seemed to go wrong, personally and professionally. So that, this is twenty twelve and twenty twelve into twenty thirteen. Right. Um, so, some people might read the book or, or look at look at the book and think, you know, th- these events are largely ten years ago. Um, why did it take so long to write, or, or, or why write about it at all? I mean, the initial answer might be that, that it's a revenge book, but as, as I, um, I think I told you, um, I don't think it's a revenge book, and I think you say that too in the book, don't you? I do. You know, and, and to answer your initial question, you know, at first I thought, just walk away from this dumpster fire and sure. forget it, because it was too painful to even look at my journal notes during that year. And so I thought, you know, writing about this pro- uh, publicly would be vandalizing my own privacy. So that's exactly what I did for five years. But the story ricocheted around my head all that time, and I finally realized I had to let it out, at least on paper. But for the first year, Joseph, that I spent writing this story, I had no intention of publishing it. It was mm. a private exercise in making sense of what had happened. But I realized that in keeping this story to myself, it was a way of not connecting fully with others, like I had done with my mother, my partner, and my son during that terrible vintage. 
Yeah. My life um, prior to that had great curb appeal because I kept all my imperfections hidden. However, you know, I really came to the conclusion that openness is the way to live a full, rich life. And vulner- the vulnerability in this story, I hope, opens a door and invites people inside my life to show them the cracks that they might recognize in their own lives. And I think extending that openness to them is how I connect with readers. And certainly the early readers have really been resonating with the book and telling me their stories, um, many of which have really moved me deeply. And and there are great lessons here, too. I mean, um, this is not too long ago. This is less than 10 years, but about 10 years ago, um, after your divorce, um, you had to establish credit. You had to get the phone line at home changed to your name, and you couldn't do that alone, could you? It's as you describe in the book. It's sort of like a 1950s time warp that you went through. Oh, I know. It's you know, after 20 years of as a working professional, I I couldn't get a credit card, and that's because I'd always been a co-card holder mm. with my husband, ex-husband, and you know, I I didn't have any loans during university because I got scholarships and ran my own business, mm-hmm. a dance school as a kid. Um, but it was all cash and carry. So, you know, when I went to apply for this phone line, they said, well, you're going to have to, um, or for the credit card, they said, you're going to have to establish credit history. Why don't you start by getting, you know, a phone line, and after six months of paying the bills, call us back and apply for one. It was like, oh, my goodness. So, But even getting um, the phone line required my husband, ex-husband, to be on the line. Uh, It was just crazy. Yeah, yeah. uh, then the other question I guess people will have, if, if, if you've gone through all of this as you have, is, is why relive, say, the bad things in terms of writing about it and just even thinking about it? But um, at, at the end of the day, it was worth it, Natalie, wasn't it? It was. So part of it was making sense of what had happened for me personally. And then the other part is I find many memoirs say they publish their stories so that others feel less alone. And I believe them, but... I always question, well, what does that mean? How can my words um, comfort someone else when our situations can be so different? But I compare it to, um, you know, when we're parents, we help our children find the words they need to articulate their feelings. And we ask them if they're hungry or tired or sad, because naming an emotion and talking about it gives them another way to deal with those feelings beyond crying and tantrums. But as adults, I think many of us lose touch with our emotions or we haven't developed the vocabulary for more complex feelings. Uh, Dr. Brené Brown, I'm a fan of hers, big researcher and author, says, we usually can only name three emotions, happy, sad, and ticked off. Mm. But there are actually more than 87 that she explores in her book, Atlas of the Heart. And so, you know, just as a doctor has to diagnose symptoms to treat a disease, I think we need to identify our feelings so we can deal with them. Otherwise, they roam inside us like unnamed ghosts. Um, however, I needed the distance of the years to reflect on what had happened so that this book was actually useful to other people reading it and not just a misery dump. Mm. Um, my favorite quote comes from memoirist Glennon Doyle, who said, write from a scar, not from an open wound. And then you have to ask, well, why even write about it as you did after the healing is sure. done? Yeah. But, you know, poet Thomas Doherty at the answer, he said, why bother? Because right now there is someone out there with a wound in the exact shape of their word, of your words. And so even though uh, the specifics of our lives are different, they may not have gone through a divorce, but they've probably felt loneliness and the longing for love. 
you know, they may not have been attacked by an online mob, but they're, they certainly felt career disappointment or fear of the future. So my memoir helps them experience those feelings, name them, understand them through a different story, and learn how someone can emerge from those fires uh, stronger and wiser. So you were 20 years into your marriage with Adam. Your son yes. Cameron at the time was 14. Yeah. Um, you write candidly about the end of the marriage, and, and um, it, it seems that you didn't see it coming. But I guess that this distance that you allowed yourself um, in terms of, say, thinking about it and eventually writing about it, it, it this hindsight, I guess, uh, affords you a chance to, say, realize what was happening in, in the course of that marriage. And, and you talk about um, your own confidence, say, eroding over the years. Yeah. And, and that's something you don't realize at the time, is it? That's true. You know, I, it's only looking back now that for 20 years I can recognize that my confidence kind of slowly leaked from me. Um, I had become so dependent both emotionally and financially on Adam that I couldn't realize or I couldn't imagine a life without him. And I also couldn't remember the young, confident woman I was when I met him in business school and mm. then proposed to him, marriage. Yeah. And, you know, so the day he told me he wanted a divorce, it completely knocked me back, and it made me question my assumptions about my marriage, myself, my reality. Um, so, you know, I, I, a lot of my sessions with my therapist, Miranda, in this book, too, which readers have found helpful, mm-hmm. um, but I said to her, I asked her, why didn't I even see this coming? I, I asked him if he had prostate cancer. I'm so naive. And she said, try not to kick yourself. You're not naive. You're trusting. You just can't imagine anyone else doing what you're not capable of doing yourself, and that's a more optimistic way to live. But that said, you know, I think there are clues and things you can look at in a relationship to be more proactive, um, you know, with a long-term relationship of any kind. You mentioned, Natalie, this online mob that came after you uh, during this time. Um, this is after your marriage uh, to Adam had collapsed. Uh, you you were with uh, Daniel now. Um, yeah. You describe what happened in in the book, and people should should read the book for for a marvelous chronicle of of those times. Um, when you get the Google alert and and you click the link as 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 you describe it in the book, what does that feel like physically? I mean, I, there are a million things are going through your head uh, about your career, um, your uh, how you're viewed as a writer, but I mean, physically, I mean, there was a visceral feeling for you, wasn't there? There was. I felt like my feet were cemented to a long ribbon of highway, and in the distance I could see an 18-wheeler coming at me full speed. I mean, the text of that Google alert just blurred and merged, and my heart was pounding. I mean, it was a very physical reaction because, you know, Doctors lose their license for um, malpractice. Mm. Lawyers get disbarred for misrepresentation. Writers get their careers canceled for copyright issues, and that was the accusation. Uh, it wasn't about plagiarism, but copyright is also very serious. And, you know, I just thought, y- you just run to that sort of dark scenario of, can I still, will I still be able to support my son? Uh, my elderly mother was dependent on me. How can I earn a living? You know, it was just, it just all merged together. And some people would say, oh, it's online. Just turn it off. Ignore it. You know, sticks and stones. But when you earn most of your living online, you can no more turn it off than a surgeon can perform surgery outside the hospital. So it's something that you live with and have to contend with um, daily. 
And it's something that that um, that, that uh, didn't resolve itself right away. It took took you a while to say build back the the, the, the trust and the brand, if you will, right? It did. Um, it helped that the the accusation was groundless. Yeah. Um, there was nothing legal that happened, and but you know, <coughs> excuse me, um, you know, I, I I lost my confidence. I lost a couple of columns because people didn't understand what was happening. Yeah. Um, so it did take back or it did take a while to build that all back. You know, my my career, my mental health, my physical health. That was that had a major impact on my physical health. I developed a heart murmur uh, that was exacerbated by stress. But yeah, you can recover. You can rise from the ashes. <laughs> it's possible. Uh, you just, as they say, need to do the work. And you can end up in a room with with a bunch of these folks that, that uh, were part <laughs> oh, yeah, of the mob, right? <laughs> all, all of the accusers with their keyboard courage. So you're referring to when I went to a wine tasting uh, in Toronto, and seven of the men were there mm. who had been pretty nasty online. And I remember coming in the door, like I, I just, I was sweating. And, you know, even Daniel, my partner, said, don't go, don't make yourself do this. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, I'm, like, digging in, stubborn, and saying, you know, if I have to avoid them for the rest of my life, I, you know, they've won. I mean, I have to take a stand. Um, so I just remember coming in the room, and, you know, they're all just... They sort of stopped and stared up from their laptops, <laughs> <laughs> and no one said a word, not then and not during the whole tasting. There were a few yeah. other people there that weren't involved in it, and I was chatting with them, but it just made me realize it was a very Wizard of Oz moment when you finally pull back the curtain and you realize the great Wizard of Oz is really you know, pretty little man at the controls there who sounded yeah. like a giant on social media, but really in person lost all of that, as I say, keyboard courage. Yeah. You write in the book that because you're based in Ottawa, you're from the Maritimes, you were never really part of, the, say, the Toronto crowd of, the, of all these wine critics and the sort. Um, and um, I think early in the book you even suggest that, that um, this it may have uh, alienated, alienated you negatively from, say, those, for, from those folks, the establishment, yeah. if you will. Um, yeah. that, that's something that I, I sort of understood being from, from Vancouver, being from British Columbia. This country is, is, a, is a big country in terms of size, but it's still a very small country, isn't it, in terms of its, it's true. media? It's and true. The, it's, the, it's big geographically, mm-hmm. and yet there are it, – it, it becomes a much smaller country when you're dealing as well with pockets of like a, like a category, like the wine world, mm-hmm. and the concentration of which is in Toronto, just like everything else, that the media is there and head offices are there. But when you're, I'm in Ottawa, um, there aren't, there isn't that concentration here. And I always felt it to be a relief because I've, I've made a profession of being an outsider. You know, my mm-hmm. mom and I, she, single mom, a teacher, we moved about 14 times by the time I was 10. So I gave up trying to make friends, but I actually liked being an only child and on my own because I, you know, went after the Highland dancing and so on. I was a happy kid, as satisfied. But, you know, I've, friendship and um, making professional bonds with other colleagues has um, always been a weakness for me. Yeah. You mentioned um, uh, Highland dancing in the, in the book, and, and um, you, you talk about how uh, at an early age you learned that, and then, uh, as you suggested a moment ago, um, as you mentioned, I should say a moment ago, you opened the school for 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 uh, young students, and then you you made money 
which helped you uh, go to college. Um, this um, this skill of, of, of dancing is, is you were able to, to uh, cultivate that at a young age. Um, this certainly gave you the ability to perform, didn't it? Whether it's on television or it's in the column, um, those skills, I guess, they, they really do stick with you, don't they? They do. Um, so, you know, I was always in the Scottish Games competing. Uh, you know, you see the bagpipers, the dancers, and, and so on, the Highland Games. So, you know, it didn't matter what was happening um, around the stage or in my life. Uh-huh. You know, as a young dancer, the rain could be bucketing down, and we'd still have to keep dancing. You know, I, I competed also over in Scotland, and sheep sometimes would be wandering between the judges <laughs> and me, and, or my neighbor would kick her swords into mine, and you learn, keep smiling, keep performing. And I became very good at performing, um, so I was kind of all or nothing. I was good one-on-one, because that was the situation mostly with mum and me, and performing in front of large crowds or judges. But again, my weakness was in that middle zone of like, you know, having a few friends or, you know, a smaller group. But dancing also gave me discipline, you know, hours and hours of practice. I mean, my my model or idol was the Romanian 14-year-old gymnast, Nadia Comaneci, and Mm. I thought, I have to be perfect by the time I'm 14. Um, But I also learned the flip side of that is that um, perfectionism and competitiveness coil together like a cobra and a boa constrictor. The first bites you with envy, and the second squeezes the joy of life out of you. And together, you know, I think they're the undisciplined pursuit of more. But now, you know, I think it's the struggle that counts. And now there's a person behind the person uh, who is all about winning and perfection, and the quieter self sees me striving and says, relax, sister, I got you. Yeah, that's the thing that I think people will admire about you when they read the book is that um, you've always had this that that uh, the sort of determination that you always stuck to things and pursued things even when there were challenges or, or no roadmap or no example even. Right. Yes. Well, you know, when it came to the wine world, um, you know, I was cold calling or pitching editors while on maternity leave from high tech. So, you know, in terms of wine. I, you know, I didn't have journalism training. I didn't have any contacts. I, I really was a nobody from nowhere who, co- you know, created a career out of nothing. Um, but that, too, just fueled my fire. I mean, one one male critic I decided to call the most famous one I could think of said, mm, you should treat it as a weekend hobby, sweetheart. <laughs> and, sweetheart, yeah. That fueled the fire under yeah. this little sweetheart. <laughs> So yeah, I did dig in and uh, made it work. The, the other thing that, uh, that struck me as I was reading the book is, is uh, you, you grew up in the Maritimes, um, and th- this idea of, of people from that part of the country—we um, all have, you know, stereotypes, good and bad. But but I can't help but think that that um, a lot of good came about from that in terms of um, it just made you so relatable to people, and, and I can see why people like watching you on television or, or reading your work or, or seeking your work online and the sort. It's, you have this personality that's, that's personable, if you will. Um, you. Do, you, do you think that, that, that um, the, the maritime upbringing had something to do with that, say? I do. Um, perhaps other regions share this, but I know in the Maritimes it is a close, close-knit, small um, series of communities. I mean, they're little villages 
literally, and I grew up in one of them, or <laughs> 14 of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what that teaches you is that, um, well, first of all, everybody knows everything about everyone. Yeah. Uh, so, you're, you know, the key phrase that my mother always had, well, what do people think? And that's a double-edged sword. It can make you always, um, you, you think twice about all your actions. Sure. But it can also make you caught up in other people's opinions. So it goes both ways. But now I realize the importance of family in small towns and that even if they're judgy, these are the people who will be at your funeral, not your Instagram followers. Mm. And so I, I think that's important. I, I really drew from that, from the Maritimes. And, and that approachability, I guess, is that, you know, always knowing, knowing that people are kind of always watching yeah. and, and knowing what you're up to. So you better be on your best behavior. Yeah, that's not a bad way to live, I guess, you know. No, it's not. No, yeah. I like, you know, it's a good thing to be conscious of other people's feelings and thoughts and, and be considerate. It's just if it takes over your perception yeah. of yourself and, yeah. and how you act, that it's always to please somebody else. There's always a balance in everything. That, wine, all of it. Yeah. Uh, speaking of a balance uh, in terms of, say, wine, um, one of the things I found just fascinating and, and incredibly interesting in, in the book is how uh, you've looked critically at your work as a writer of wine, um, that you did ask yourself um, if you were contributing, say, to the negative effects of alcohol consumption. What, what conclusions did you come to in this sort of last, in, in this period of time in your life, this, this, this uh, awful time, but also in, in the last 10 years, say? I mean, we're all mm-hmm. conscious of, of, of how much we drink now. Um, did you um, did you come to any conclusions as to, to say your part in it all? Yeah, well, I did. And, you know, as I write in the book, um, I'd always made my personal wine habits fodder for public consumption. They were part of my slap, slapstick uh-huh. kind of humor. You know, my first yeah. book was red, white, and drunk all over. Um, <laughs> but now I hope that my issues and challenges with drinking will fuel a discussion on over-drinking because there's so many wine mom memes out there and, you know, jokes and so on. <clears throat> but I think post-pandemic, we're all reassessing our relationship with alcohol. And I haven't gone sober. I mean, you know, wine means a lot to me, from personal pleasure to professional income. Yeah. But I had to really examine my assumptions and question my own consumption. And as you said, you know, was I... Was I bringing more pleasure or pain into the world? Was I being an enabler by joking about over-drinking all the time? Um, so, you know, I've since pulled back on those kinds of quips. I think I can find humor in other ways. And then throughout the book, I also sprinkle tips on how I got kind of a handle on my own drinking. It's not a self-help book, but a lot of readers are finding it very helpful as they look for ways to cut back on their own drinking you know for example you know when you open a full bottle of wine you definitely know you do not want to have it all or you're not sharing it with someone maybe pour half of it into an empty half bottle that'll keep it super fresh and then you'll be more cognizant of how much you're drinking you know things like that really can help because one more thing i want to add um, on this topic of alcohol consumption the u.s department of health and human statistics indicates that the hospitality industry which includes wineries and restaurants, has the highest rate of substance abuse among mm. all professions. And it's something we don't talk about in my industry, and that was another purpose in writing this book. 
How, how do you go about your work, Natalie? I'm, I'm sure I asked you this before, but um, when you have to taste uh, wine for the column, for the website, um, how does it work in terms of, say, uh, what you consume in a week? I mean, it, it, there was a wine tasting in town, and, and I saw the, the photographs online on Twitter, and, you know, there's, there's those the spittoons or those buckets that people spit into afterwards. Yep. Uh, is that how you do your work, how you, how you gauge these wines, say? Yes. Um, well, as I teach uh, my online students, I have food and wine pairing courses online, I say the difference between tasting and drinking is thinking. Mm. So I'm tasting wines. I'm not drinking them when it comes to professionally evaluating them. So that, that does mean spitting. Yeah. And <clears throat> excuse me, I will do like a lineup of similar wines, um, you know, say 10, 15 Cabernets from Chile, so that I'm comparing like with like and spitting all the time, making notes, and then putting them on, online. Yeah. Um, th- there's an episode in the book where your friend Nina um, asks you if you thought you drink too much. Um, what was she seeing in your life that, that I guess prompted that question? I think when she asked, she was also asking for herself, mm. as do many women online and via email, I get these questions all the time, especially from women, saying, how much is too much? But it it comes in sometimes in the disguise of how much do you think you drink too much or how much do you drink? So, you know, if you drink X, I must be okay with Y. And and thus my questioning if I was being an enabler to other people. Um, so uh, when she asked, <coughs> excuse me, um, I said yes. And I, I think I drink too much. And she said, do, do you drink to handle stress? And I said, yes, sadly. And she said, you know, something like last night was the first night in more than a year that I didn't have wine. And so then I knew immediately where she was coming from, yeah, yeah. you know. And and I think we have to open up that conversation and be honest about our consumption habits, how we're dealing with it. And that, you know, progress isn't a linear uh, linear line, whatever. It, yeah. it, you can get better than worse than better than worse in terms of dealing with anything, including cutting back on drinking, and to stay with it. You know, because I think there's much pleasure to be had from wine. But I now question: What was the thought before the thought that said I need a glass of wine? And was it about dealing with the day's stress, or was it I would just like to have an enjoyable glass of wine? And if it's the first. I try to look for other ways to deal with that daily stress, whether it's you know going for a walk, having a bath, watching a favorite show. Yeah, I mean even Cameron at fourteen noticed that there was an increase in consumption at the time, right? He, um, well, I'm not sure how much he noticed. Uh, I was surprised how little he seemed to notice, and then I've talked with him since. It's uh-huh. ten years later. He doesn't recall those kind of issues, but. Then again, he grew up with a mother who always had a glass of wine in her hand, mm, so that was his yeah, normal, yeah. you know, because I had it, you know, for professionally and personally. And really, the the problem with drinking didn't happen until that year, um, that terrible vintage that started with the divorce and ended with the online mobbing. And so, I guess you could say, fortunately, I don't know, my... Mm-hmm. My overdrinking was situational, and once I dealt with the underlying issues and stresses related to those two things, right. the drink, overdrinking really yeah. um, dissipated the need for it, yeah. 
treating it as a crutch. Well, what's his own relationship with wine? I mean, he's 14 then, so he's in his 20s now. That's right. Uh, you write in the book he's uh, in the tech industry, I believe. Is that right? He is, yeah, yeah. computer engineering. Yeah. Um, he doesn't drink. And, and and that's something that you talk about early in the book, about um, even as a kid, you um, introduced him to wine, if you will. You let him taste it, right? I did, but I was really mean because I could have, <coughs> excuse me, given him a glass of dessert wine, and sure. he probably would have liked it, like <laughs> right. liquid candy. But yeah. no, I chose a really uh, full-bodied tannic Shiraz. And his little tongue just curled up and went, yuck! <laughs> and I think he swore off all alcohol from that day. Because I didn't want it to be taboo, but I didn't want to make it attractive either. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. that was his first la- and last sip of wine. So the, how alcohol is marketed to men and women, I, I, I found incredibly interesting because that comes into focus in the book. Um, uh, you mentioned, you know, uh, uh, how it's uh, mar- marketed to women as a sort of a help. Uh, what is it that line I always see? Mother's little Mommy's helper. Mommy's little helper. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then uh, for for men, for example, and, and I can't remember the name of the the um, the, the critic who um, writes about whiskey, and mm. and uh, c- certain uh, the certain way that he frames his reviews uh, for for booze have have to do with sex and women. Um, do you think we're any better in terms of of, of say how we look at alcohol and and how it's marketed to say men and women you know i think the message on some bottle labels is still that women belong to a particular category so we're either vixens drawn to brands like little black dress and stiletto you know they feature labels with short dresses high heels and red lips or we're exhausted mothers you know buying brands like mommy juice and mommy's time out to obliviate the stress of motherhood and if we're not babes we're battle axes so we're reaching for labels like Mad Housewife with taglines like Award Thyself, The Dishes Can Wait, and Ditter Be Damned. <laughs> so, and you know, I, I always did laugh at these. Like, you know, yeah. they are humorous. But it made me question, you know, should we be laughing or raging at jokes that demean women? And the marketing message, though, more importantly, is that women need to have a reason to drink, whether it's girls' night out, a fancy occasion, or just getting through another day. It's implied we need permission to drink like we do when we buy things. And yeah. as you said, conversely, wine is marketed to men as sophisticated and artisanal. No, man, no one asks a man why he wants a drink. He has one because he wants one. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I think both the wine labels, these kinds of wine labels targeting women, and the labels we slap on women themselves profit from powerlessness um and so i had to step back and question that as well and and this idea of of the witch you've really leaned yeah. into it in, in 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 the course of this book i mean um the the idea of a witch you know is an outcast someone who's despised someone who's scorned or, or hunted um these are things that that, that you've uh, taken ownership of right yeah i think so You know, witches resonate with me because their strength comes from within and not from external validation. I think they embody the unity of women and the healing connection to nature. And my favorite childhood stories were always about witches. So the good and the bad, especially the Wizard of Oz and that battling duo of Glinda the Good Witch and the Wicked Witch of the West. Um, I was entranced with those opposing forces because I realized those were inside me too. 
And I even loved the straight-up badass white witch in Narnia. Mm. Her wickedness was such a satisfying outlet for a tiny Miss Goody Two-Shoes. Um, now, of course, you know I realize how damaging stereotypes of women can be, and I think it's time to reclaim the word witch and what it means. A wise woman who's been through the fire and knows the measure of her powers. Yeah. You dedicate the book to your mother? Um, and and you talk about her over the course of the book. She, she comes off as a real hero. Um, yes. How is she? She's great. She's still in great health. Ten years later, um, and you know we we're in regular regular communication. She comes up from Nova Scotia to visit us regularly as well. And yeah, she's still my hero. I you know I, I the dedication as you mentioned at the front is to her who. Um, you know, taught me how big my brave is and to let the words out. And my last line in the acknowledgments is also to her. And it's, um, Mom, I did it. Yeah. I let the words out. Yeah. It's, it's a hell of a read, Natalie. Congratulations and, and good luck with the book. I appreciate uh, your time and um, uh, the chat today. Thanks for this. Oh, thank you, Joseph. And thank you for letting me share this with your listeners. And I'll just add a quick thing that they can get a free companion guide for book clubs, wine groups, and just individual readers at winewitchonfire.com forward slash guide. And I'm happy to send anyone who buys a book, or several, uh-huh. uh, signed book plates. So just email me, natalie at nataliemcclain.com. Thanks for this, Natalie. Thank you, Joseph. Cheers. The website for more is at winewitchonfire.com. The book is called Wine Witch on Fire, Rising from the Ashes of Divorce, Defamation, and Drinking Too Much. It's uh, published by Dundurn Press. It's author Natalie McLean. Join me on the line from Ottawa, Ontario. In Vancouver, I'm Joseph Flanton.